Welcome back in listeners to another wonderful episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We have a very fun episode in store for you today. Joining us today, we have the writer Timothy Haskell, whose new show being presented by Psycho Clan in association with Brooklyn Art House is The Rise and Fall, then Brief and Modest Rise, followed by a relative fall of Jean-Claude Van Damme. Begins its performance on Sunday, June 11th at 7 p.m. and will continue playing on Sundays at 7 p.m. at the Brooklyn Art House. You can get your tickets and more information by visiting bkarthouse.com. And that's arthouse, H-A-U-S.com. So with that, let's go ahead and bring on our guest, Timothy Haskell. Welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad that you were able to join us. I'm so excited to talk to you about this riveting new drama that you have written, you know, just based on the title alone. <laughs> no, I mean, this is a great new, I think it, they called it a fightsicle, was in the, the the promo email that we got, which I went, what's a fightsicle? And the more I scrolled down, I was like, of course, Jean-Claude Van Damme, one of the great action heroes of the 80s and 90s. So could you tell us a little bit more about this show? Absolutely. I, I want to address the fightsicle uh, moniker, if you, if, you, if you don't mind. So that is a term that I invented about 20 years ago when I directed a production of Roadhouse. And it was it actually ran at the Barrel Street Theater, which is an off-Broadway venue, and Roadhouse being the, the Patrick Swayze movie. And how I defined fightsicle is everywhere where someone might sing a song and do a dance number, I have big elaborate fights. So... That's and, and so that's true for this show as well, except for they're not quite that show was the fights were by people, human beings. And the fights in this one are largely by action figures who've been turned into puppets who fight each other. Kind of maybe one might think Team America style, all those are those are uh, marionettes. But yeah, I have an amazing puppet puppet creator who's working with us who basically wired up all these action figures. And puppets, you know, they they uh, they go to battle a lot. It's also, but the the actors there are there are actors in it as well who are who are the main characters who embody Jean Claude Van Damme as well as forty other characters in Jean Claude Van Damme's life as well as the narrator. And you know, it, it's it's a very loose walk down memory lane of Jean Claude Van Damme's life. And when I say loose, it's because I don't know anything about Jean Claude Van Damme's life. Or I and I don't really recall, although I I watched his movies at nauseum when I was a child. I don't really recall his career arc so much, and I I wanted to keep it that way. I wanted to write something that was based on just memory. The, like I said, the the subtitle of the play is as gleaned by a single reading of his Wikipedia page a month earlier, because I did give it a cursory glance. But that, but you know I decided that like. You know what? It's pro- I'm going to write a story that comes from the perspective of how I remember it as now as an adult from when I was a child, and and make up the parts that I don't know so that I can bridge the gaps in his life story. It's a very very kooky, very wacky, very silly play, but I did write it in the style of my favorite book, which is Obana gets Breakfast of Champions. So it's you know in, in that book you know there's a, there's a lot of like this character does that, this, and it looks like this. 
And that's sort of the style of the play. It's like, oh, he did this, and it looks like this, and then something happens. And then and then it becomes very meta at the end where Jean-Claude is becomes the writer. He is the writer. He he comes out, breaks the fourth wall, you know, it's or is the audience. They they be sort of become immersed into the production, they become a character. And so it's it, it's it really is sort of like a lucid dream version of of my memories of Jean-Claude Van Damme's career. That's so much fun. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> What inspired you to write this show? Where did you get the original idea to do this? You know, the, honestly, the original idea was because I've been doing so much. The, my career is, um, is between a couple of different things. I, I have I've done a lot of plays with that are heavy on fight choreography. I've done a lot of um, came, um, plays that are very campy. And then I'm also very well known, probably to, to a fault, unfortunately, for the horror stuff that I do. I, I, I've got a whole... Um, a very theatrical haunted house has become an institution in, in the city for the last 20 some years. So between those things, you know, it's like they're all the sort of the common thread between them is that they're all populist and that they're like accessible and broad and kind of gimmicky. If I but because gimmicky has a sort of pejorative tone to it, you know, I, I look at it like more like like it's what makes it fun. And I'm all about fun. Like everything I do, I want everything I want to, I do. I want it to be entertaining. I want it to be fun. And that is the most important part of what I do. And that's what I've been doing for 25 years. And the idea came from both my fight choreography work and my, and my, some of my puppet work. And I, I thought it would be really fun to watch puppets fight. And um, that was and, and that was before I even wanted those puppets to fight as Jean-Claude Van Damme. So like so when you ask like where did the idea from the play come from, it was first from okay, I, I want I want puppets to fight. So um what's the best way to present that and why are they fighting and who are they fighting and yeah, I mean what and what you know what what are, what are they based on? So you know, and then I got to the Jean-Claude Van Damme part because I really like action stars nowadays. I mean, you've got The Rock. I guess Will Smith's heyday is past. This Tom Cruise is still around, but for the most part, like the the action star is not really a thing anymore. It's back in you know our I mean, we're still talking about like Arnold Schwarzenegger still Tom Cruise. I mean, these are all people who were still who were action stars back then too. I mean, so the. So, but they're like, other than The Rock, there's not that many new action stars. And, you know, there was a whole, there was Steven Seagal, there was Jean-Claude Van Damme, there was Wesley Snipes, there was Brigitte Nielsen, there was um, Sylvester Stallone is also still doing it. But like, it was a whole genre. And it really defined like late 80s, early 90s movies in a way. I mean, they, they, they're so lampoonable at this point, you know, you know, between what we've learned about like, toxic masculinity and such like the the these movies are are not movies that would be very well received nowadays i don't think but it's, it's, in, in some ways just presenting them is is satire enough and i so you know it's like whatever themes one derives from watching it i think comes from the the earnestness with which we do it so between all those stars i think my favorite, at least in terms of what I thought would be the funniest as a puppet, was Jean-Claude Van Damme. And because, you know, he did all the splits and he was probably, you know, out of all of them, 
probably the best martial artist of an actual fighter. I mean, Jet Li came around a little bit, we, we, a little bit later and he was obviously very talented, but in terms of like actual, like not just being a movie, doing movie martial arts, he was a legit fighter. I mean, a legit, a legit kickboxing champion and karate champion. I mean, so he could, he could do it. And I just sort of, and I've always thought that like the, tra the tragic arc of his, his, I always thought rested on the story that he got beat up in a bar by, by some guy. And it was, it was, it was so embarrassing that like he, people stopped casting him as it wasn't just sort of like his movie stopped making money. It was sort of like people stopped taking him seriously because they, they knew that for a fact that he actually at least anymore couldn't fight. And that was sort of important to people's relationship with him. So I thought it was quite tragic that like that was, you know, I mean, Keanu Reeves to his credit, who I think is wonderful in, in the Matrix and John Wick's films, always, always try, always is clear about differentiating himself from actual martial artists and in interviews and stuff. He's always like, no, I'm not a real martial, I'm a movie martial artist, you know, and, and you know, he's, he's respectable in that way. But, uh, but whereas, so whereas Jean-Claude, it's like, I, I even compared in the, in the play to pro wrestling it's like everyone knows that it's fake, but, and they, you know, no one's not in on it, but you don't want a wrestler to be like, you know, this fake, what this fight wasn't real. Right. Like, and then that would be like, come on, man. Well, yeah, we knew it, but don't, don't pray. Don't, don't point out the obvious. Don't like, don't break our hearts. So it's like, you know, people, it's like Santa Claus, I guess. Like people suspend their disbelief for the enjoyment of something. And, and Jean-Claude Van Damme's career, I feel like ended on, that notion being dispelled for people that he wasn't actually a great fighter anymore. And, you know, he's, he's making it, he made a comeback, I guess, in the last 10 years, but still sort of as a meta version of himself. And then my, my play, which he's probably like, I'm sure he's aware of it because he got a big times right up. So it's like, I'm sure someone pointed out to him that this play was happening. And he's probably just like, man, people leave me alone. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, as much as I, I satirize him in the, in the play and, and, you know, and make fun of him in a lot of ways, I, you know, I'm very careful to not, to not cross lines. Like, like, I don't want to, dis I don't want to disrespect him. I don't want it to be disrespectful, you know, because I think people can laugh at themselves up to a point. And I think I found that point. Like, I don't want to just be like, this guy, terrible actor, terrible at everything he does. <laughs> he was such a bad actor like you know i don't want i don't want to be because you know he wasn't he was awesome in his way he made a lot of people happy you know but like he's also kind of a lot at least a lot of the movies he did, did were ridiculous absolutely ridiculous so it's like i don't i don't want to let that i mean i'm sure he knows that so it's like i don't want to let that go <laughs> and that, and that's what i focus on just sort of like his career his fake career and his fake personal life which for the most part is fake because I don't like I said I did very little research and that's that's the part of the, the gimmick is not to know as little about him no I didn't go out of my way to not know anything about him I just wanted to, I wanted to present as much as I knew about him as anyone my age would and that's why it's like uh, it, it definitely has a nostalgic feeling for people Gen Xers I guess although I've had lots of young people come and they you know it's just, and they love it because, and when I say young people, I'm people in their twenties, 
and it's pretty blue. The play plays pretty blue. So it's not for kids, <laughs> but they, they love it. I mean, they don't get all the references, although with memes and such, you know, so many memes, you know, I have an 18 year old son and he knows like, he's never watched the Godfather, although I want him to watch Godfather, but he knows everything about Godfather because they've made a hundred million memes from that movie and other movies. So it's like, he knows like all the characters, he knows what happens in it just because of how people use media now so it's like that's why i think young people get it. i mean a lot of people know like jean-claude van damme did a split in something it was time cop but you know they don't need to know but you know they, on countertops they don't need to know that what the movie was or why he did it but they need to know that's a ridiculous thing to do and that's enough to laugh at that moment when it <laughs> happens in the play so you know it's it's the re response has been quite wonderful it has gotten some amazing reviews we ran it last summer and we are, we decided to bring it back this summer for an extended run at a beautiful new space called the Brooklyn Art House. And yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I think I, I think I got most of that out. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a comedy. It's a good farce. But is there a message or a thought that you maybe hope the audience takes away from the show? Yes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my answer because here it is. I, and I was telling my actors this the other day. Of course there is. I mean, there, there's purpose, but I don't write or direct because of my main, my main gig is as a director. I don't write or direct process or themes or, or points of view. I, uh, my, my, my first job is to entertain because if people do not enjoy themselves at something, they don't talk about it. They don't care what your point, whatever your message was. So I, I, I try not to like break down what the themes are. I mean, yeah, there's themes of like American dream, there's toxic masculinity, tragic arcs, the hero, the hero's journey. There's a lot of all of that, that is in there, but like that that's in there. I mean, it's already there, you know, it's like we, we did the work, but, but, but when we were are directing it and they're saying my words, my actors who are absolutely brilliant, do what they do. The goal it's not like, oh, I want, I want to make sure that the audience understands that what we're trying to say here is this, because that kind of art is incredibly boring. And I, you know, I, I don't go to something that I'm really bored by and continue to talk about it afterwards. I just was like, okay, done with that. Mind shut off. I'm no longer interested in talking about what I just saw. So it's, it's super important to me that the most important, that the, the thing that the audiences get away from it is that they laughed a lot. They had a really good time. They felt things. And then that's when they start, can have a conversation. And I want it to mean so much to so many people. I mean, I think it, it does mean a lot to Gen Xers. And I want it to mean something different to them. I don't want to tell them, what, tell you or them or anybody what it means. Because I want them to have, to create the meaning for themselves. But I will just say this, that there is purpose to it. But the, the main purpose is for them to have a good time. Yeah, love that. <laughs> and winding down this first part of the interview, is there anyone in particular you hope have access to the show? Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> I actually, I would welcome him coming. I would not be scared of what he thinks. I think he'd get a good laugh. Who I want to see the show Everybody, of course, I mean, as a, as a producer as well, I mean, it's like, it's important to me that my audience is not limited, but yeah, people my age, 
they laugh their asses off. I mean, they they get everything, and they and they have so much fun. And it's not just, you know, the other kind the kind of jokes I hate are people who laugh. You know, like I call it the Shakespeare laugh. It's like, oh yeah, I recognize that as, that as a joke. It's not a real laugh, right? It's like, oh, I, 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 I see that that w- a joke was just told, and I, and that it's like, I mean, not, I'm not saying that Shakespeare can't be absolutely hilarious. It can, but I'm saying that that's that's the kind of experience that people have with a lot of classical plays is that they they laugh at things just because they recognize it was a joke. I want to be, I want the laughs to be like, I don't want them just to see something that is nostalgic to them be like oh yeah i remember that movie oh yeah i remember that moment i remember that thing that he did or that person did like that that's not the kind of laughs i'm going for like i'm glad that they have those kind of kind of thoughts but i want them to like you know i i want them to come away with it like with actual guttural side splitting laughter um, because it is absolutely absurd I mean, I'm as a writer, I'm an absurdist. You know, I love wordplay. I love linguistics. I love just oddities and things that like are you know confounding, enigmatic uh, moments. And you know, the, the, and I just feel like those things, those are the things that I laugh at. Those are the things that I think are funny, and that's that's the, the people who appreciate that kind of thing, who I think are people of my generation. That's who I enjoy watching the show, you know, in the sort of. 40 to 55 range, I guess. But I definitely know that audiences younger than that have been crucial and important and enjoy the hell out of it. up now and give our listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better and i want to start with my regular for opening question which is what or who inspires you what playwrights or composers or shows have inspired you or are even some of your favorites well i'm an ionesco guy ionesco and beckett like those are my in terms of like directing like the structure of brecht Although I don't always enjoy Brecht's plays, but I do like his his teachings. Those are sort of that that's the world I come from, in terms of like like modern artists like Will Eno is someone who I admire a great deal. Edward Albee, you know, a lot of the I I took my son to see a, a dance show a couple of weeks ago. It was very very absurd, very very funny didn't make a lick of sense as to why they were doing the things they did which i loved and everything was just so quirky and kooky and they were trying to be funny it wasn't just like i laugh at things that are weird like um, that also gets very boring because i i feel like just being weird is is a crutch for a lot of artists it's like i don't need to explain myself because i'll just tell them it's abstract like i don't just because you make you you abstract something doesn't make it deep uh, usually it's just a cover for uh, being able to tell us not being able to tell a story but like i do like 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 absurd stuff and i took him to see the show couldn't have been more off off broadway and i and he's an 18 year old and he's very cynical and doesn't like to see anything and afterwards he was like i found that highly entertaining and so it's not always about 
like big commercial productions. I mean, I do like Lafrere Corbusier, or I don't know if they are even doing anything like Alex Timber. Like I, th- I like his work, you know, elevator repair service, those kind of, you know, those kind of companies are, are things that I really like. But yeah, it's usually not going to be a big Broadway show that I, are going to be among my favorite. It's not that I don't appreciate them. I like everything, anything that can entertain me. Musical, like Book of Mormons, hilarious. Anything that, that is entertaining, I am not a snob. I'm not like, oh, I can't possibly enjoy a Broadway show. No, I absolutely could. I just do find a lot of the things that I enjoy are are things that I just discover, usually like really small things, people that, you know, I'm one of 11 people in the audience, and I sometimes have just the greatest time. You know, there's so much happening. Sadly, it's happening less, I think, in New York City theater. I mean, when I was coming up out of college, the, the the avant-garde performance art scene was vast. The Lower East Side itself had like 20 theaters, and now it's got like one. And there was just so much, on any given night, there was so much life and vivacity happening, so much art being created. Some of it horrible, and, and I'm not even going to glamorize it or romanticize it. It was not enjoyable. But some of it was amazing, and and I do love discovering something that's amazing. I love that. I love all the, I mean, you're exactly right. If it entertains, why not add it to the list, you know? So what a wonderful list of of inspiration there. And you mentioned a few productions and I want to kind of build off of that and ask, have you seen any great theater lately you would recommend to our listeners? It's been tougher. I I, I moved upstate a couple of years ago. So it's been more difficult for me to go out and, I grew up, lived in Brooklyn for 30 years. And then five years ago, I moved upstate to Cold Spring. So in terms of like what's out there now, it's a little bit more challenging because I don't get to see as much. I can't get down to the city as much. You know, what's it called? That magic show at the McKittrick is pretty awesome. Oh, Sleep No More? Not Sleep No More. That's also at the McKittrick. No, the, um, what's that magic show? Oh, Speakeasy Magic. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. pretty cool. That yeah, that I would I would recommend that because <laughs> that's still playing. Uh, and that's very cool. Well, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? I mean, I'm such a high concept director and writer. I mean, conceiving of the piece, like like sometimes I, I can't come up with anything because I create most of my stuff. I just don't have any big ideas. I guess my favorite part is when I do when I know it. Like I know that this is a good idea. Like I try not to put square pegs in the round holes and just force ideas. I mean, I get hired as a director a lot. And I usually, you know, I make good of whatever it is I'm working on and make it my own and and make it the process that I enjoy. But my favorite part is sort of like conceptualizing a production. You know, I'll be the first one to tell anyone that I'm not, I'm not a like, you know, hard-hitting melodrama, two-fister kind of director, like uh, um, where you know where we do lots of table work and we talk about every nuance of the of the character of their lives and what their thought is. I mean, I know that work is important. Those plays are can be fantastic, but I don't get enough thrill out of like that because it's it's you know it's traditional, and I and I definitely like coming up with something that has not been done, has not been done in the way that I'm doing it. I mean, I know there are no new ideas, and so I don't want to claim that I, I'm the one that comes up with them. But, you know, they're new-ish. <laughs> and on the newer side, 
So, uh, you know, I, I, I do enjoy like when an idea pops into my head and I know that it, it's going to work, you know, I don't, I don't do them otherwise. That's awesome. Well, we now have arrived at my favorite question to ask guests, which is what is your favorite theater memory? I guess I was like in 10th grade in high school and I went to a performing arts school and I played King Sextimus in Once Upon a Mattress. Once Upon a Mattress, I don't know if you know that play, the musical. It's about based on Princess and the Pea. When King Seximus is a, he's like Harpo Marx. He doesn't talk the whole time. He's, and he's very lascivious and he's always chasing after girls with like, you know, has a horn, like he's Harpo Marx, but he can't talk because of some spell that was put on him. And I always remember like the moment, like, so at the end of that play, he finds his voice, like the spell has been broken. He finds his voice and he says, ah, I, I can and his wife is like this cliche, the queen is this cliche, like brow beating harpy of a wife, you know, <laughs> the kind that they used to draw back in the day. And she's like, just, just harangues them all the time. And, and then, but because, but he, and he couldn't fight back because he had no voice. And so I, I remember, so the line is, I, he says, I, I can, I, I can speak. And, I, and then I turned to her and I said, I have a lot to say. You know, I'm in 10th grade, right? But I just remember, like, it was like the first lead role I had had in a play in my high school. And I just remember, like, the crowd just going crazy. Like, oh, he's going to get her. Like, they just went nuts. And it just felt, I just, I'm I'm getting sort of chills thinking about it now. It's what's, it was that moment that I sort of fell in love with the theater because just like they had been paying attention to everything that my character was going through. They had been paying attention to like my, my arc and my experience. And they cared enough about it that like when I had the power to fight back, they were, they were super excited that I was going to. And I just was like, I just thought that was something that can't happen in film. And it's, it's what made me want to be in theater because that immediacy, that, that emotional impact that can you can only be found yeah i always say that like the worst movie is definitely better than most plays most theatrical presentations at least in terms of being able to sit through it but the best but nothing compares to an amazing theater experience the best movie is not better than the best theater experience. And it's like, so it's like you're searching for those moments all your life, like to see as an audience or as a participant to like be a moment where the theater is doing exactly like it's supposed to do and achieving why, you know, achieving its ends in the way that are the reason why it's still around after thousands of years. And that was that moment for me. And I remember like, it was also why I was like, it was so important to me that entertaining an audience was so important because they were, they were in it. They were paying attention and they were only, they they were only in it because they weren't bored out of their minds. They were having a great time. And I just, so it's like, not only did it make me fall in love with theater, but it made me fall in love with the kind of theater that I have since been doing for the last 30 years. Oh, I love that. What a wonderful memory. 
We love a great where it all began kind of memory. So thank you yeah. so much. For well, I was hesitant to give that one because I was like, that's what he gets all the time, right? <laughs> oh, no, no. We, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. Are there any productions or projects that you have coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? Yeah. I mean, I have Nightmare Dollhouse. My new scary thing is going to open this fall at uh, Clemente Soto Velez Cultural Center in the Lower East Side. You know, the 22nd year of Nightmare Productions. Every year is different. So Nightmare Nightmare Dollhouse is what this one's called. And I'm working on, uh, or at least a year away from me doing anything with it, but I'm working on um, a fake third movie of the Breakin' series. I don't know if you remember the Breakin' movies from the 80s. They're like they have. Remember, there was a whole bunch of like breakdancing movies. Well, so there was Breaking One and then Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo. So I'm creating um, Breaking Three, Boogity D. So it's it's you know it's a fictional, uh, <laughs> satirical version of the the third movie that never was, that never happened, except for will be on stage. The so I'm more y'all deserved. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, if our listeners want more about the rise and fall, then brief and modest rise, followed by a relative fall of John Cod Van Dam, or about you, perhaps they'd like to reach out to you. How can they do so? Well, I mean, for the play, BK Art House is the best way to do that. BKArthouse.com. To know more about me and my company, you'd go to thepsychoclan.com. That's that's my company's website. Perfect. Well, Timothy, thank you so much for taking the time to stop by and share just this great show, share your insights and that wonderful memory. And I'm looking forward to the upcoming projects as well. This great haunted house. And like I said, the movie that we all deserve that never happened. (laughs) It will happen. (laughs) All right, buddy. Thanks a lot. My guest today has been the writer, Timothy Haskell, whose upcoming show, The Rise and Fall, Then Brief and Modest Rise, followed by a relative fall of Jean-Claude Van Damme, is playing Sundays beginning June 11th at 7 p.m. at the Brooklyn Art House. It's being presented by Psycho Clan in association with Brooklyn Art House. You can get your tickets and more information by visiting bkarthouse.com. And again, that's House H-A-U-S. You can also get more information about all the many projects and things that Timothy's up to and has done by visiting the psychoclan.com. And we're going to have all this information posted on our episode description, as well as on our social media posts. So stay tuned to that, but head on over on a lovely Sunday evening to the Brooklyn art house and check out this great show, the rise and fall, then brief and modest rise followed by a relative fall of Jean-Claude Van Damme. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Okay,
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.